Holy smokes, this episode brought me to tears. Guys, Bozema St. John is a Hall of Fame marketing exec who started work with Spike Lee and became one of the most amazing entrepreneurs. Like she, her credits are just insane. She's worked for Apple Music. She's worked for Pepsi. She's done everything. She's worked for Netflix. And yet, that isn't the most impressive thing about her. The most impressive thing about her is that she did all of this through heart breaking, heart-wrenching, tears and heartbreak. As she loses her husband, as she loses a child, she is still able to go through tremendous freaking trauma and show up and be a damn badass on the other side. And so today, guys, we talk and we go deep and discuss how the heck you can become the most powerful person When you're in such deep pain, we talk about the four words you can start repeating to yourself to get away from the guilt that may be crushing you. And the one question you need to ask yourself to decide if your current situation is a heck yes or a hell no. Guys, grab the tissues because holy smokes, this episode is going to cause you to grab a lot of them because if you're anything like me, the tears won't stop. Without further ado, the most incredible badass, Bozema St. John. Come what may, and it's not that I want anything more to come, but come what may, I know, I know, I know that I will get up again. I've done it one time, two times, three times. Because what happens a lot of times, we blame ourselves. We think we are deficient for the situation we're in. There's still trauma, of course, that makes me react or that I'm triggered by. But the wisdom in it is that I know that I'm a survivor. But for real, though. Bo St. John in the house. Yes. What up, girl? Welcome to Women of Impact. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate it. We're going to have to take a deep breath because your book yeah. is so deep. Mm. And where I'd love to start is actually a quote of the girls that knocked me for six. Mm. Sometimes it's hard to believe that any of this happened that my college boyfriend died by suicide, that I became pregnant when I didn't plan to and then had to bury a child, that I met the love of my life and lost him to cancer. But I've had time to take stock and to revisit all the wisdom those experiences had to offer. Any one of those Mm. would knock most women Mm. to their knees and not be able to get up. Mm. And yet you can go through all of that and still say there's wisdom in it. Mm. What is that wisdom and how do we start to adopt that? Mm. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Um, The beginning of that sentence is still true. You know, I can I can hardly believe it. Like when I think about it, it feels like somebody else's life. And at the same time, my life, Mm. you know, is that strange to say? It it feels like, oh, this is an experience over there Mm. because I can say it and now I can say it without weeping. You know, I can say the words without it crushing me, without feeling like everything is lost. You know, that's that's a it's a weird place to be, if I can be totally honest, you know, because it's um, something that, of course, in the process of going through it doesn't feel that way. You don't feel like you're going to recover. You know, so I can't sit here and pretend like at any point in any of those experiences or as they were compounding that I sat there and thought, oh, you know what? I, I can see wisdom in this. I know why this is happening. You know, I remember going to the church 
where my husband would be, we would have his funeral and retracing the steps because it was the same church where we had buried our daughter and thinking and swearing to God and saying that I will never do this again. Like, I will never do this again. I cannot believe that I'm here. You know? So even in that, like, being able to say the string of those words and those experiences and not break is a miracle to even me. I'm literally like, I don't know how, I can't even believe it happened. You know? And so the wisdom, though, that has come out of it is, um, and the reason why I don't walk around afraid of the next thing that's going to happen. And believe me, it's not as if I'm walking around like, da, 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 everything is fine. Who cares what happens? You know, like I still harbor some of that. There's still trauma, of course, that makes me react or that I'm triggered by. But the wisdom in it is that I know that I'm a survivor. But for real, though, not these plippy things that people say and they're just like, oh, I can, I can make it through anything. No, 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 no. I have been there. I've been at the bottom. I've been at the place where like it was so dark that I, di- I didn't want to see light again. It wasn't even that I couldn't see light. I didn't want to see it. If somebody has like shown light on me, I would have closed my eyes because it would have been too painful to open. And for me, that is the wisdom that I carry now is that I know that come what may. And it's not that I want anything more to come, but come what may, I know, I know, I know that I will get up again. I've done it one time, two times three times. And that's just in death. That's not even in the corporate space where that's different type of death. You know, that's not in the way that like you're cut with the small blades that you don't even know you're bleeding until later when you're gone. You know, those traumas, I have survived all of it and I'm still here. Like what, what, what can actually fail me? Nothing. I'm the most powerful person I know because I've been there and I've been able to survive it. Hi, dude, can we go deep on this? Because (laughs) that was so damn profound and beautiful. And you can talk about that and say all of that from the position you are today, right? Mm. I've gotten back up and so I've used that. So if you don't mind actually going back to then the first time, because I think that Mm. this is that moment, because the proof of concept of you, if you will, is a beautiful thing to go back to, right? So the second trauma, you go back to, but I I was able to do it once, so now I can do it again. But what about the people right now that may be listening, that are in that first time, Mm. that then they stay down, they feel like the victim, not the survivor, and they then don't know how to proceed. They don't know how to take ownership over their life Mm. or to say, I can freaking do this. And in your damn resilience, homie, like there's some so many nuggets I think that we can hopefully get Mm. out that Mm. someone can take and adopt into them their time so that when they're on their knees, if they don't have that, that they can almost use the skills that you've developed. So if you don't actually mind taking me back to your Mm. boyfriend, Ben, Mm -hmm. if you don't mind giving us the story about um, your relationship with him, and then I think that that story will really help lay the foundation of then the rest of your life. Yeah. Um, Gosh, Ben, Ben was magical. You know, he was my college boyfriend. Um, I was not looking for him. (laughs) He was definitely not on my list of the, the checkoff things of what I wanted in my life. You know, this French-speaking Genevan guy whose mom was American and his father English and was growing up in Geneva. And also a rapper at Wesleyan University in Middletown, Connecticut. You know, like, this is a weirdo. You know what I mean? Like, he was strange. He was a strange guy. Um, but the way that he loved was so beautiful that I couldn't help myself, but also fall. 
you know? Mm -hmm. And our relationship, of course, looking in hindsight now, and so many years later, you know, I can see how faulted it was, you know, and that we were both struggling with, I would, I would definitely say mental health issues, you know, where I was on medication, he was not, mm. you know, I recognized my depression, he wouldn't, you know, um, we were in that kind of toxic relationship where you're just trying to prove to the other person how much you love them more than the other, you know, or like with jab to make sure that you loved me a lot. You know, that kind of thing. Mm. It was not a healthy place to be. And now, of course, I can look back and see how the signs that were leading to his eventual suicide were always present. I just didn't know. I didn't recognize it. And so the night that he decided to take his life, um, he was in Geneva. I was in Connecticut still. And he was calling me repeatedly, which was not a strange thing because that was the nature of our the relationship. The obsessive calling. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but he was making threats and all of the things. And I slammed the phone down and walked out of my apartment and you know didn't have a cell phone at the time. So I went out with my girlfriends to blow off steam, thinking I'll come back and he'll be fine or he'll at least be calm and won't be accusing me of this and that and blah, 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 blah. Um, and that is not what happened. You know, I came home to a series of voicemail messages that were increasingly disturbing. You know, and the last one, I knew something had happened. I just didn't want to believe it. Um, eventually, what he had done was jump off a bridge that was nearby his apartment. And I had to call his mom and his dad and ask them if they had seen him or heard from him and confess that he had left me some disturbing messages. And... All of that was, it was, it was shocking and nothing that I, that I knew how to navigate. And I don't know if anybody knows how to navigate that, you know? And because I was 20 years old, 21, I think, you know, there was no way for me to um, even articulate what was happening to us or to make sense of what then happened. And then even in the following months to try and rationalize or what I felt even now, as I sit here now, 20 something years later, um, to forgive myself for that. You know, and even recently as um, we've seen so much that has been publicized around people who die by suicide, I had to write a piece you know, like a few a few weeks ago, um, because I was like, look, the, those of us who are left carry guilt. And how do you forgive yourself? You know, and so perhaps even in the answer to your question about like, if you are in a position now of trauma or loss, and by the way, it doesn't have to be this type right. of loss, right? Any kind of loss where you feel like, how do I pick up? Because what happens a lot of times we blame ourselves. We think we are deficient for the situation we're in, you know? And to use the words you said, we feel like we're a victim of that because we think, well, it is my fault. It is why I'm here. And take any number of scenarios. You know, in that situation with Ben, I thought only if I'd been home to answer the phone. Why didn't I stay? 
I think about that now. Say, well, what, what, if, what if I just waited 20 more minutes? You know, and the realization, of course, through therapy and others is that he would have done what he decided to do with or without me. You know, that was his decision and not my fault. And that's easy to say. It is not easy to internalize and then live with that, you know, and say, oh, you know, it wasn't my fault. And so what happens is, yes, we blame ourselves. And so if you're in the middle of a trauma or a loss or something, you are trying to figure out how you can do something differently so you don't do that thing again because you blame yourself. And so part of the nugget of what I am learning or what I've learned in these is that it is not your fault. It is not your fault. Whatever position it is you are in now, it is not your fault. There may have been actions that you felt led you to this place, but it is not your fault. You know, and if you really understand that and you start saying that every time you get into that space where it feels like, oh my goodness, woe is me, what am I doing? No, no, no. That is only happening because you're blaming yourself. You're blaming yourself. And if you remove that blame and you say, well, you know what? This thing would have happened whether I was there or not. Then you are separate from that blame. And therefore you can stand up and look at it objectively and say, okay, now let me try and navigate around this thing because this is not healthy for me. And so now as I think about not just Ben, but any number of things, you know, when I lost my first daughter, I blamed myself, of course. You know, my body betrayed me. That's what happened. And as soon as I started to consider the fact that it was not my fault, that it was something that happened, you know, that was out of my control, I was better able to reconcile not just the event of it, but to forgive myself. Well, yeah, I've heard you talk about, you say in the book about, you know, the difference between the emotions and the reality, because mm. you feel something and then just by saying, you know, hang on, if I wasn't there, that still would have happened is yeah. a very powerful way, I think, of yeah. processing. Yeah. And then repeating that it's not my fault mm. is very powerful because that's the thing that, that that is a tool now that someone can use in that situation. Mm. And I say this a lot, but this this idea haunts me. Have you seen the movie Sliding Doors? Oh, gosh, yes, I have. I think about that all the time. Right? So All the time. You make the doors, your life goes one way. You don't make the doors, your life goes yeah. a different way. Yeah. So I played that scenario back when I read in your book the story mm. about Ben because I thought mm. how many young girls right now have boyfriends that are manipulative, mm. boyfriends that are saying, hey, you're cheating on me, right? I know Ben yes. used to say that to you yeah. a lot. Yeah. Like, And he used to threaten, I'm going to take my life. Yes. You don't love me anymore. Right. I was in a relationship just like that mm. at the age of 16. And mm. when I was insecure, I believed it yeah. because he was the only one that showed me any attention and attraction. Right. And so I felt good about it. Yeah. And so now I took that person's words for truth. Mm. So now think through, if you had gone home early, yeah. you are staying in that manipulative relationship mm -hmm. out of fear. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And he knows that. Yes. Now, what I didn't expect, though, in your book was that he actually jumped off the bridge. Yeah. So I'm like living this story as I'm reading your book in real yeah. time. Yeah. So I'm like, OK, I'm so glad she gets out of that relationship. Right. Like I had no idea right. he committed suicide. And so when I read that, it stopped me in my tracks because I'm like, mm. that can teach you the wrong, um, the wrong message. Yes, for sure. For sure. Because then you get trapped. Right. You think, OK, the next time this happens, right. what I'm going to do is I'm going to stay. Mm -hmm. In my apartment mm -hmm. or in the relationship, I'm just going to love harder. 
I'm going to love more because it was my fault, right? It was my fault. If I'd only shown him that I loved him, if I'd only been there when he needed me, if I hadn't been so selfish to go get a drink with my girlfriends because I was tired and exhausted, then he wouldn't have done this, you know? And we do that across so many things. You know, like I said, it doesn't have to be this extreme in order to feel that way, that we often say that. That's the message that is in our heads playing again and again and again. So now we need to switch it the other way, you know, make it go in reverse. It's like, no, this is not my fault. This is not my fault. This is not my fault. And I'm going to put it over here. Because once I'm separated from that, then I can stand up. The weight of that guilt will lay you down. And it will bury you. So the only way to get out is to say again and again, realize, recognize, and until you recognize it, say it. Mm. You know? Like, you know, sometimes you got to fake it till you make it. Yeah, they say oh, that. I'm full just that say shit. it. Just continue to say it. It's not my fault. <laughs> yeah. Every time that thought comes, it's not my fault. Mm-hmm. It's not my fault. 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 Until you believe it. Because then you can, that weight goes over here. And you can actually stand up and try something else. Go a different path. Move beyond the pain of what you're dealing with. Because until you do that, until you recognize that it is not your fault, even if somebody is telling you that, even if you are telling yourself that, there's no way to move. The weight is too heavy. It's too heavy to move. Do you think then if you hadn't have done that, you wouldn't have been able to find Peter, your oh, husband? Absolutely. absolutely. Because the fear of that happening again, you know, the fear of not being enough again, you know, not enough love for somebody to remain on the planet, you know? Like that, that is a guilt that um, I would not have been able to find love having stayed in that place. Mm. It was necessary for me to recognize that it was not my fault. It was necessary for me to realize that he would have made that decision with or without me. And without that realization, there's no way I open myself up to somebody else. It's not possible. Was that part of then, because I think when you go through some loss like that and you go okay well next time how am I going to show up next time what are the decisions I'm going to make and so the story where you met Peter and in your book you say about how you go to approach telling your dad yes um growing up in a Greek orthodox religion that can be petrifying oh yeah um especially when you are daddy's girl, Mm. especially when you respect your father, you look up to your father, you don't Mm -hmm. want to disappoint your father. Mm -hmm. Many people, especially my audience, find themselves in situations where they fall in love with somebody, but the expectations that their family has on Mm. them or the pressures lead them to not taking that opportunity when it's like right there. So if you don't mind talking to me about that situation with Peter and your dad and then how the, the, the past of Ben, that idea of, like what am I going to choose next and like how do I show up how you really lend into that with your father and Peter Ooh, yes okay so I'll start with maybe the most painful thing my dad said to me which in full transparency I still have a hard time forgiving him for that Um, when I told him about Peter because Peter's white from Italian background redhead as well right (laughs) I'm not sure why that makes you like, like yeah. even more. It's like it's like the most white person you can get. You know what I'm saying? It's like really like you could even be like olive skinned. No, 
redhead, you know? Um, but he said to me, he, he, and you know, again, the, the complexities of humans, you know mm -hmm. what I mean? Like my father's not perfect, you know? And, and yes, I have him on a pedestal, but he's not perfect, you know? And he said to me, how could you do this again? You see what happened to the last one? And all I could think of was like, oh my God, like, is he right? Is he right? You know, because I already had doubts. I already had fears. I already had traumas. And so all he was doing was reinforcing that. And so we think about our lives and think about the people who care for you, you know, who love you, who don't want anything bad to happen to you, but reinforce your trauma and reinforce your fear and what you have to do with that. You know, because yes, of course I love my dad. I respect him so much. What he had to do... <laughs> to just make it in life and then have us and then raise us. Like, it's a miracle that he exists. And so the fact that he was saying this to me was not out of malice, although that's what happened to me. You know, mm -hmm. the intent was not malice, but it harmed me. And so how then do I look at him and forgive for that, right? Because to address it, he would say, oh, but I didn't, no, I didn't mean to hurt you. I just want to make sure that you're going to be okay. And that's what happens mm -hmm. in our lives. It can be your parents. It can be your best friend. It could be your pastor. It could be anybody, your kids even. You know, they didn't mean to hurt you, but that's what happens. And you have to also recognize that and be able to accept it. And so in that moment, when then it was time to actually introduce him to Peter, oh, all of my triggers were going off. Everything was going off, right? Because I want Peter to be perfect so that my dad can see why it is that I would risk this again. You know, why I would believe a man who said he loved me, even if his culture and his background were not like ours. And so in, me, and so in, that, in that meeting, you know, it, it came with a lot of baggage also because my parents are very traditional very Christian, do not believe in, you know, living with someone before wedlock, none of that, you know? And so when I said, oh, this is my boyfriend and I want to live with him, it was like, where, where are you going to do that? Absolutely not. You know? Is that shame upon the family or oh, something? Oh, yes, he yes. He, says, how could, he said, how could you shame us like that? You know? And I'm the eldest of four girls in my family, you know, my parents for sure made me feel like I, you know, was the lead in everything. And so no mistakes could be made because then it would give my sisters the wrong impression of life. So even just the pressure of that, you know, the idea that um, I couldn't make mistakes, I couldn't take a wrong turn, you know, in some, to some degree, I couldn't live life for on my own terms because my life would always be lived in comparison or as an example for other people. Right. Um, and even as I just said that, I realized that I still have that pressure, but it's wider. You know, that in the corporate spaces, gosh, that just that just literally dawned on me that in the corporate spaces, how many times have I heard that I'm an example for everybody else? Like that, that is part of the ethos of what I live with. I remember being um, at Apple and I was the head of music and entertainment marketing you know, um, or actually the head of uh, Apple Music Marketing. And I had to do the presentation for the Apple keynote. 
to introduce Apple Music to the world. No pressure. No pressure, exactly. <laughs> you know, and yeah, the, the, the thought that, of course, I was the first black person on that stage and, you know, all of the data that comes along with, like, what happens on that stage, the words you say, the colors you wear, the way you express the product so that people can buy it, so that the stock performs well. You know, all that pressure. And going into it knowing that if I messed up, if I didn't complete the mission of presenting this well, there would not be another black woman on that stage. Absolutely. Oh, God. Because, because like, look, look, anybody else, all the white men that have been on that stage, they couldn't do anything they want, you know, make mistakes. And guess what? That's Greg's fault. That's Eddie's fault. That's Jim's fault. That's Steve's fault. But if I make a mistake, it's not just Bose. No, 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 no. That must be because it is hard to trust a black woman talking about tech, right? That's the truth of it. And so even in connecting it back to what I'm saying about even how I was raised, those truths have always been with me, which is that like, look, if you mess up, all these other people, your sisters or the faceless, nameless mass out there will not have the opportunity. And so that was what was underneath the current (laughs) of introducing my dad to Peter and hoping that he would see the validity of my decision to step off the path. That even if he thought it was wrong, that it was still the right thing to do. I'm going to be utterly honest. There is little more damaging to your confidence than feeling weak and helpless and just struggling to get the care that you actually need from your doctor. And trust me, guys, I unfortunately speak from experience because when I was struggling with crippling, crippling gut issues about nine years ago now, it took me years, years to find a doctor that not only could I connect with, but a doctor that actually would listen, wouldn't gaslight me and actually take my words and my experience as truth so that they could actually eventually help me heal and not just to give me another freaking pill and then push me out the door. But now, my homie, you don't have to struggle to find the right doctor for you anymore. And that's thanks to ZocDoc. ZocDoc is an absolutely free app and website where you can search and compare highly rated in-network doctors near you and then instantly book appointments with them online. And with ZocDoc, you can actually filter by insurance, location and specialities to find the perfect fit for you, not for your friend, not for anyone else, but for you. Plus, on top of that, you can actually go and read verified reviews from real patients to find the doc that you can actually trust. And typically, wait times for booking an appointment are days, not weeks. Because let's face it, when you're sick, you need to see someone right now. So my homie, do not, I repeat, do not neglect your health. Instead, go over to ZocDoc dot com slash Lisa and download the ZocDoc app for absolutely free. Then find and book a top rated doctor today. That's ZocDoc, Z-O-C-D-O-C dot com slash Lisa. ZocDoc dot com slash Lisa. That's a lot to carry, girl. I actually have a quote of yours about that. Mm. Um, 
-hmm. You say, for the first time, my dad's disappointment wasn't enough for me to change my plans. Yes. And so is that how you ended up making that decision? Because right now I'm sure people are like, but how did you make it? Yeah. Because you so hold yourself maybe true to the identity that you were brought up or mm-hmm. being that mm-hmm. first child. Hey, you're the, you're yeah. the shine. Everyone's going to be looking at you, right? Yeah. And that pressure is an identity thing. It's not just a like, oh, yeah. you know, go and do that. It's an identity. Yeah. And to shift out of that identity because maybe your heart wants something else is bloody hard. Mm. So how on earth, like, was that a way of you processing it? You just said, okay, here's my dad and here's what I want. Yeah. And it's like, what is the heavier weight? Yes, yes, yes. That's exactly it. But that's the choices we make every day, right? It wasn't like bravery. It seems it was, like bravery, it was, though. It was love. It was love. And I wanted love from Peter more than I wanted my dad's approval. That's it. That, w- that was the decision. And I can say, of course, to you now, that if I didn't love Peter as I did, I would have chosen my father. I'd chosen him many times before. I'd, cho- I'd chosen him over myself many times before. And so I just happened to love Peter more than I cared for my father's approval. And we make those trade-offs every day. You know, it's like, it's so funny when people say things to me like, oh, I was too busy to do X, Y, Z thing. I couldn't do it because I was da, 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 da. I always look at people like as they say those things, I'm just like, no, it wasn't that you were too busy. You made a choice. Mm -hmm. You decided that that thing was more important than this time with me. Or you decided that that event over there was more important than this event over here. You made a choice. And even with my daughter now, I'm very conscious of that. You know, if I decide that I'm going to miss an event of hers or something that we were supposed to do together because, you know, work or something like that. No, it's not because like there's some pressure that is overwhelming. I must do that. No, you made a choice. I decided that that thing was more important than this thing. And so in that moment, yeah, it wasn't bravery. It was only love. It was only love that made me make that choice that said, yes, this, this is what I want more than this. That's it. Oh my God, that's so beautiful. And I love the choice thing because I think we trick ourselves. It, it's it's so soothing the mechanism, I think. When you say you don't have a choice, it just makes you feel better. Yeah. Oh, I didn't have a choice. You do have a choice. And I love that because yeah. even just in what we're saying, it's like, if you didn't believe that, you may not have chosen Peter who ended that's up right. being the love of your life, right? That's so right. it's like that's having right. that, making that and just owning it, I actually think is way more freaking powerful. Yeah. It's like, why would you give your power away to someone else if you yeah. say you didn't have a choice? Yeah. No, it's true. But so, we do that all the time. Mm-hmm. We do that all the time. Because look, even in, in work or in family responsibilities or all that stuff, you say, oh, well, I can't do that thing because I don't have a choice. I have to do this, right? Or I have to stay in this job or I have to stay in this relationship. I have to do, I have to, I have to, I have to, I have to do. No, you made a choice. You made a choice. Okay. And things that as soon as you start recognizing that, that you can make other choices. Mm-hmm. You can start planning for the other choice. And by the way, it is part of the reason why when people look at like my resume of my career, they're just like, oh my God, you just moved from this job to that job and da da da. And oh my goodness, like, didn't you feel any responsibility or weren't you scared? And I'm like, no, I just made choices. I made choices and then decided that this is not working for me anymore. And now how am I going to change this up? It was a choice. Because yes, I'm a single mom who bears a responsibility of now not just taking care of my daughter, but taking care of my parents. And amongst other things that I have to do. And so, no, I don't have the luxury of just like being like, oh, you know what? I think I won't have a job now. No, I have to, I have to work. I have to make money. Okay. 
But the question is, how do I choose to do it? And in what capacity? And if I'm in a situation, work or otherwise, that is not serving me, I have to make the choice to save myself. I love myself more than I love the situation of toxicity. And so that has become my reality. And it's what I wish other people would have the ability to do. You are not stuck. You don't have to do anything. When you say that, you're giving the power away. You have a choice. So it's yours to make. I was holding my breath. I didn't want to, I wanted to like get my pom-poms going, Jiffy. Oh, yeah. it is so empowering what you're saying. And I really yeah. hope, because people have a choice right now. They yeah. can feel like the victims are, but I didn't have a choice. And look, there are definitely certain situations that oh. if you find just, so we want to make sure. sure that people oh, aren't goodness. taking that. And I understand. Yeah. We just want to say that. But on the other types of things, and yeah. just going into your story, yeah. the way that you even say this in all the story with the heartbreak that, you know, um, that you've gone through, yeah. it's still empowering. And so for you to have gone through all this and still say things are a choice yes. is actually such a beautiful yeah. way to yeah. keep showing up and take ownership over your own life. Yes, and over my destiny. Mm. You know, because you're right, there are many situations where things happen to you. I'm not negating that no. at all. You know? So in like, fact, if you don't mind, actually, this is a perfect example. If you don't yeah. mind using, um, or as an example, your first child. Yes. Like this is actually yes. a good Yes, ex- yes, yes, yes. If I could choose whether or not she lived or died, I would have chosen her life. Even though in my book, I'm very honest about the fact that when I got pregnant, I did not want to be pregnant. And this is your first child. My first child. When do we talk about that? You know, it's like, yes, on paper, I was married. I've been married for five years. We're living a fabulous life in Manhattan, both in booming careers, taking vacations when we want to healthy, young, you know, like on paper, of course, go ahead, motherhood, fantastic, be pregnant. Why would we be upset about that? But I didn't want to be pregnant. I didn't want to be a mother just yet. I wasn't sure I wanted to be a mother at all, to be honest. You know, but Peter wanted kids and I was staving him off for like five years, you know, and it was not planned. I was taking my birth control religiously, by the way. You know what I'm saying? And then it was like one month I was late. I was like, oh, hell, what is this? You know, and I take that pregnancy test and it was like, wait, no, this is impossible. That's not possible. It's not possible. I cried. I cried. I wasn't celebrating. I wasn't happy about it. It took me a week to tell my own mother, you know, just in denial, waiting. And we don't talk about that, that you can be in the, what on paper can be the perfect situation and still not want the thing that society thinks that you should want, you know? But in that, even in that experience, what then happened to me was that even though, yes, on paper I'm healthy and the situation is amazing and, you know, I have the access to the best doctors and all the things, they still missed huge diagnosis for me. You know, that I was having challenges in my body that didn't allow me to have a healthy pregnancy all the way through. And so at six months pregnant, I developed extreme and lethal preeclampsia, which usually, if it all happens to you, happens at the very end of pregnancy when you're ready to give birth anyway. But me, it was life-threatening, not just to my daughter, but to myself. And that is something that happened to me, right? Right. A medical situation that I could not control. 
even though in that, and this goes back to what we're talking about, I still blame myself. I still blame even my body. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Why didn't I recognize it? Why didn't, why I was swollen, like I knew there was something wrong with me. You know, like I talk about instinct a lot now, mm -hmm. you know, in your gut and mm -hmm. like trusting your intuition and all those things. I knew it. I knew there was something wrong. I didn't voice it. But you kept going to the doctor and he yes. kept saying you were okay. Exactly. And so, you know, I would say, oh, do you think this? And then he'd be like, no. But I knew it. I knew it. I knew it. I knew it. Why didn't I go to somebody else? Mm. Why didn't I force him to like take blood work? Why didn't I, why didn't I yell? I didn't. You know, and so like, yes, that's a situation that happened to me that was outside of my control. But following that, I had a choice. You know, I had a choice. And some people disagreed with my choice, which was that I wanted to get pregnant again right away. And for people who may not know, so you ended up having to be induced and the baby yes, didn't survive. That's correct. Which was, I, I can't, I still don't have the words to articulate what that experience felt like. I tried my best to tell it in my book, the process of it, but it is still very difficult to articulate the emotion of what that kind of loss feels like, you know, especially because for me, again, like thinking about guilt and all of those things, I thought, you know, God must be punishing me, you know, for not wanting this child to begin with. And that for me was a very slow process to fall in love with the baby that was coming. You know, it was not immediate. I didn't wake up one day and like, oh, happy, happy, joy, joy, I'm pregnant. No, it took me a long time in the process of pregnancy. And even at the very end of my pregnancy with her, part of the fracture that happened to Peter and I in our relationship was that the doctor gave him a choice. Gave him the choice. Gave him the choice. The baby or me? He said one of us would die. So which one was it going to be? And Peter chose his wife. And I was pissed that, first of all, I didn't have the choice. And that also that he chose me. Because at that point, I would have given everything. I would have given life for her to live. And so coming into that and realizing that after she died and knowing that Perhaps I had done something wrong that God was punishing me for not having celebrated her to begin with. That that was going to be my punishment. That was going to be my penance for the rest of my life was to sit with that decision, you know. And so then afterwards, making the choice to say, OK, I'm ready for motherhood now. Lord, I'm ready. <laughs> Give me another shot at this. Even though everybody said not to do it. Not just my doctors. Peter himself said, no, we're not ready. And I was like, no, yes, we are. Lay, lay the fuck down. <laughs> so what is in your book Give me that. You know what I mean? Because I'm ready to be a mom. <laughs> and then you're like, your legs are up yeah, in the yeah, air yeah. for oh, three hours. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. No. After sex, what? My legs would be straight up in the air. I would not move. I was like, nobody touch me. Let me lay here. Gotta... You made him bring you food oh. wait, for like three days because oh, yeah, you didn't yeah, want to yeah. yeah, I'm not walking around just in case. I need, I, need, I need to be inseminated, my God. You but know? for you, part of that, must was it from then feeling like, okay, well, this must have taught me a lesson. The lesson is this baby. I need to have a baby. And yeah. so you took that yeah. as like I took that as like the, the calling in my life then right. to right the wrong of what had happened to 
correct it by becoming pregnant again and doing things right. And then you know what happened? Everything went wrong again, you know, in my body. Because like, look, sometimes you are not in control of the circumstances. And so then the choice was, how am I going to manage this in this pregnancy? How am I going to manage this fear? How am I going to manage this anxiety? And yes, like maybe it sounds like an easy decision, but I was like, oh no, we need therapy. Like I need therapy to make it through this pregnancy, right? And then even towards the end of my pregnancy with Lael, who survived, you know, her birth, it was seven and a half months, you know? So not, it wasn't even that much more time than I'd had with Eve. And the differences of my own advocacy for my own health, you know, choosing a doctor that would listen to me, you know, being in a position that I knew that, okay, when, if it were to happen again, if I were to get sick again, what would I do? What would the choices that I would make, right? And then even after she was born, making the choice that I could not live in fear of her life, of her breathing, that was a choice. Because I knew that if I didn't make that choice, I would be constantly crippled underneath this weight. And that she wouldn't know a happy, wonderful, loving mom. She'd only know the one who was like, knitting at her all the time. So it had to be a choice. So yeah. How did you take that choice though and then echo echo it into your actions? Because I assume sometimes the fear still came. Oh yes. Oh, all the time. I mean, look, I won't pretend like even now I don't walk into a room sometimes and put my ear by her, you know, by her mouth to make sure she's breathing. You know what I mean? I still do that. But the, but the truth of the matter is that, um, you know, I think there's a difference between, you know, the kind of concern that you have you know, it's like, okay, every time she walks out the door, I'm like, hey, be careful out there. Right. You know, there's yeah. a difference in that. And what we all probably recognize sometimes is like the binding fear. Like the anxiety Yes, fear, it yeah. doesn't allow you to live mm-hmm. properly. Mm-hmm. You know, it doesn't allow you to breathe properly. We know that. You know, again, this goes back to the whole idea of intuition. Nobody needs to diagnose you for that. You know that. Mm-hmm. You know, and you know that it's hurting your life. And so you have to choose to be free of it and get the help to get out of it, you know, because sometimes it's not your own power that can get you out of the situation. Sometimes you do need help. And so make the choice to get the help because that's not normal. It's not natural. It doesn't make you feel good. So if it doesn't, then you've got to make the choice to save yourself. Love yourself more than the situation you're in. God, you're just like knocking me for sick. I mean, this is, it's so damn strong and Every moment where you do have a choice, you just chose you as in yes. your power, your strength. Um, yeah. And so in those moments where like she's tiny, what was she like three and a half oh my pounds gosh, or something? Yes. Tiny, tiny. And you said like, like her skin was translucent. Oh, yeah. yeah, I could see her heart beating, going, not just because of the movement, but I could right. see it. And it was like she was the size of your hand. Yeah. Okay, so you've already had your past experience that is just utterly heartbreaking. The same situation happens. Obviously, she lives, but in that moment where I'm sure, like, how do you not just ooze fear? And so I understand you you telling yourself, okay, don't don't choose fear, don't don't choose fear, choose, you know, the strength. But when it comes in, when you start to have that, like, pit of your stomach, Mm -hmm. how Mm -hmm. do you keep going? Yeah. Well... Look, again, this is my own personal story, right? And so it doesn't apply to everyone. Um, I am a woman of faith. I believe in God, although, you know, my relationship with religion has changed a lot. Um, 
But I, <laughs> I decided that God and I are homies. Okay. God is not like some, like, you know, just all powerful thing over here. Who's just mm-hmm. vengeful and like trying to hurt me all the time, you know, or that I have to just obey all the time. Mm-hmm. Like that's, that's not our relationship. Our relationship is more like friends. You know, sometimes I can be mad at God. Just like you could be mad at your friend and still love your friend. You know what I mean? Or get in a little tiff and decide you're not talking to that person. I do that. You know, I'm like, God, look, you and I, we need some space for just a little bit. Okay. I might come back. I might not. You know, like. (laughs) Yeah. But to me, the um, what happened for me is that I had to relinquish some of that power. You know, so we've talked about the fact that like, yes, I feel very powerful in myself. I can make choices for myself. I can choose myself. But sometimes that power also does need to be relinquished so that you can actually live a life where you can breathe. You know, it's like it's like anything. Like, give me your hand. Right. If you have somebody's hand and you're squeezing it, all the muscles and your energy is right here. Right. But sometimes if you just relax it a little bit, you're still holding on. But you relax it a little bit. You're able to concentrate on other things. You know, not all my energy is here in my arm. I can like focus on something mm. else. If I'm squeezing you, like all I can think of is this. And so it doesn't mean that I've relinquished my power. I was still holding your hand. You know, the power is in me holding your hand. But maybe just loosen it just a little bit to give yourself some breathing room. To allow for other things to happen. To allow to focus on other things. Just squeezing it so hard. It was the same action. Your hand was still in the palm of mine. But the habit of like holding on for dear life meant that I couldn't see anything else. I can't do anything else. Just loosen it just a little bit. And what that meant for me personally was that I had to relinquish some of that power to God, Mm. to the universe, and to destiny. You know, and say, well, you know what? I can't control everything that happens in life. I can see that now. (laughs) Look, things happen to me. And so should they happen, something goes wrong. You know, they all had like jaundice and she had all these problems and we had to take her to the doctor every three months until she was four. You know, it was like every time we'd go to the doctor, I'd be sitting there on pins and needles waiting to get the report that she was growing fine, that her cognitive skills were okay, that, you know, all the things. But I just had to be able to relinquish some of that fear and turn it over. And say, like, I cannot control everything here, okay? So I got to choose to keep unclenching my hand. Sometimes it's as simple as that. Recognizing that I'm here sitting like this. So, yes, it still happens to me. And then I have to recognize that and say, okay, come on, loosen up, loosen up, loosen up. Let it go. You know, so she's going to go off with her friends now to, like, you know, the theme park. They're out here at Six Flags. And there's some other parent who's going to take them. And I'm holding on and thinking, oh, my God, I don't want to let her go. I got to recognize that and say, okay, okay, okay. Loosen up, loosen up. Let her go. Let her go. Let her go. Let her enjoy herself. Okay, baby, have a good time. You need any money? You know? (laughs) And that happens again and again and again in situations. So it's not that I'm without fear. It's not as if, like, those triggers don't come. It's just that now I recognize when I'm squeezing so hard that I can't focus on anything else. And to talk myself into opening up and letting go. And I use God in a way to allow me to do that. And that's not everybody's journey. But perhaps if you can recognize that when you're holding on so tight, that there's nothing else that you can do because everything is happening right here. And can you imagine what happens after a long time? Your arm gets tired. 
And here you are like putting more energy and more energy into holding on. So maybe it's actually to your benefit. There's more power in like releasing and recognizing that you have the power to do that. You have the power to do that. That's more powerful than just holding on. God, that's so freaking powerful. Like mm. the, the analogy is really clear for me. And I think that that gives people at home, hopefully, that um, idea of like, yeah. okay, am I tight? Am I tight? Yeah. And that kind of gives them a North Star to then ask, let go. Like, yeah. I love that. It's so tactical. And that's always what, like when you're in moments of emotion where maybe yeah. you can't see straight, yeah. what are the tactics that someone can go to um, to yeah. ease their breath, to take yeah. that calm, you know, yeah. the deep breath that you're talking about. And as we're talking about letting go, I think one of the big things is people find it very hard to let go of relationships yeah. where if you've been with somebody for a long time, I mean, even let's just take your situation, right? It's mm -hmm. already hard that you had to tell your dad yeah. that you're in love with this white guy and, you know, like having to bear the, the emotion that then comes with that from your family. Yeah. When you go down a path and you're like, no, he's the one, yeah. I love him, right? And then you've gone through all this, like, heartache mm. um with you with both children yeah and then still saying is this relationship right mm. for me and i have a quote from yours that just like knocked me for six which everything you said in your book actually knocked me for six but um we've been so worried about my blood pressure and strokes and the terror of having two pregnancies that might kill me but in the wake of all of that i'd come to a harsh realization while i was willing to die for those babies i was not willing to die for this marriage mm. i was not willing to die for peter and shouldn't i be if this was a marriage worth fighting for <sighs> The thought of how many people stay in that relationship for the rest of their lives because they've told themselves a story that we've come through so much mm -hmm. that we've really, you know, like we, we built this life together mm. and they then don't let go. Yeah. And so recognizing that you needed to let go mm. is so damn profound. How mm. the hell did you come to that conclusion mm. and then have, I would say, the bravery to walk away? Yeah, well, gosh, where do I start with that? Um, I think some of it is, ego you know which you mm -hmm. actually kind of pointed on which is that like of course i'd fought for it threw it in my dad's face right Psh, you're wrong mm -hmm. this is going to be great this is going to be the best thing ever and you're going to see you know and then how do you go back and say actually I, yeah you might have been right you know what i mean like <laughs> yeah. I, like it's ego ego that makes you feel that way you know that makes you feel like oh i gotta hold on to this because everybody told us that this was wrong people do that in jobs they do that with friendships they do that with all kind of stuff not just marriages and romantic relationships mm -hmm. and for me i think part of it was that um oh gosh it's like the question about whether or not i was going to choose myself you know and that also being a result of letting go of my ego. Because look, society would look at me, right? And say like, you're in this beautiful marriage. You've got now got this beautiful child. Like you're successful in your life and your work. And then here comes the stain of a divorcee, <laughs> single mom. You know, those are not, those are not the words that people like, you know, nobody wakes up and says that's what they want to be. Mm. You know what I mean? Mm. And so there's shame in that. And there's your ego in that. And for me, like the, the lens that I had to look through was that, is this relationship, is this situation going to make me a better me? And if the answer is no, 
then that situation is no. It became as easy as that. Because, yes, relationships are worth fighting for. There are some things that you go through that just like, oh my gosh, like, yes, we've been through so much. Let us stay together. But is it because it's going to make you better? Are you better for it, for staying in it? If the answer is no, then the situation is no. Really. And I know it's tough. I do. I was there. I've done it. You know? And Lael was a year old. Also, let's talk about that. Mm. You know? And do you know how many people were just like, oh, this is just a rough patch. You know, y'all go to some couples counseling and it'll be all right. Your baby is a year. Don't you want her to be in a broken home? The guilt again. That's what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. And all I could think of was like, but I'm not going to be better. She's going to grow up with a mom who stayed in a marriage for her, whatever that means, and was worse for it. Was worse for it. You know, like, she's not going to grow up with this person. She would have grown up with somebody else. Mm. And that I didn't want. So if I'm not better for the heartache of whatever situation I'm in, that also applies to work. (laughs) (laughs) If I'm not better for it, if I'm not learning from it, if I'm not more expansive because of it, then the answer is no. I got to go. And that's how you've been able to have, A, just such an incredible career from Spike Lee to Netflix to Apple. Um, And it's so incredible. Actually, it's funny. Yeah, you saying that. Wow, it's really hit me that that idea has really echoed on both sides of your life, like very much the professional side and then very much the personal side of just like if this doesn't if this doesn't serve me, then why am I here? Why am I here? Then why am I here? And yes, in, in relationships, it can feel very confusing because you're like, oh, I committed to this thing, you mm-hmm. know? And yes, there are rough patches in every relationship, you know? But at the end of the day, the question again is that like, is this going to make me better mm-hmm. as a human being in this experience of life? And what am I fighting for? You know, if I'm not fighting because like I need to stay in this relationship because this is going to be better for me, I know that sounds selfish. You know, folks will say that. They'll be like, oh, that sounds real selfish. Like, aren't you supposed to, like, you know, be here for other people? No, 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 no. You are here for yourself, okay? Like, let's also say that. Maybe that's a little bit controversial, okay? But you are here for you. This life is yours. And even all the sacrifices that you can make, you know, especially women, like, we do this all the time. You know, you put other people in front of you and sacrifice, sacrifice. I mean, how how many more pedestals can we put that word sacrifice on? Oh, my gosh. You know, it's like if I hear that again, like, oh, I sacrificed this for this person. I sacrificed this for my kids. You know what? You did your kids a disservice. You did your your kids a disservice. They did not get the best version of you. How do you feel about that? And that's what I refuse to have. I'm not sacrificing myself. I'm not sacrificing anything in my life. It will make me a worse version. And then do I want Lael to have that person? No, I don't. So, yeah, I had to... Sacrifice my marriage in order to save myself and to make me the better person that I knew was capable of walking this planet. (laughs) Your resilience is beyond measure. Mm. 
I'm not gonna um, chunk it to genetics. There's just, there's too many complexities to what you just mm. said. Mm. Um, and I think it really does, if I can just put one word to it, ownership. Yeah, yes. You've taken full freaking ownership mm. over every aspect of your life yeah. from kids, family, career, mm -hmm. and it just shows in everything that you say. Mm -hmm. um, now, when you can take ownership over how you show up, going back to the unexpected um, surprises that may yeah. happen in your life that then take yeah. you off course, right? Mm -hmm. Because, like, I can just imagine, right, you're like, okay, I've really, you know, like, resilience, like, you really built it, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. you leave Peter, and, you know, you yeah. really focus on your career yeah. and your child, yeah. and then you find out as if life couldn't throw you anymore, that both your mum gets cancer and Peter gets cancer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, How right? do you then re... Yes. It's like, it's really, it's, yeah. It's like one of those moments where you just, you're just like, really? Like, how is this even possible? Yo. But the truth of it also is that, um, you know, I did have to ask myself the question about sacrifice power, choice, when we found out that Peter's cancer was terminal, you know? Because for three years after we separated, um, I was very careful to maintain a partnership, a good partnership, you know, what I felt would be healthy for me, healthy for Lael, and certainly healthy for him. Um, it was difficult. Because as you can imagine, it's like, look, when you have a partner who doesn't want to be divorced, <laughs> look, mm -hmm. they will try and make your life hell. You know what I'm saying? And to some degree, I was hiding to also protect him, right? Hiding mm -hmm. any other relationships that I was in or that, you know, and, and trying to play that game of being like, oh, don't you think you should be in a relationship too? You know, it'll make, mm -hmm. you, so, it'll make you so much better. You know what I mean? And then eventually he did. And so then we're like, oh, great, fantastic. You want to move on? I want to move on too. Let's get divorced. You know? mm. And then in the middle of that, oh, yes, my mother gets diagnosed with cancer for the second time. I have to move her from Colorado to the East Coast so that she's closer so I can help manage that. And then Peter gets diagnosed with cancer. And I'm like, oh, but look at this. What am I supposed to do now? Now he's getting treatment at Memorial Sloan Kettering. She's getting treatment in New Jersey. I'm driving back and forth, taking care of my four-year-old, going to the office where I'm head of marketing for PepsiCo for music entertainment marketing. I've just done a deal with the NFL, a huge, enormous deal. I'm putting Beyonce on the Super Bowl stage. Like All of this stuff is happening at the same time. And I'm still conscious of the fact that I have to perform at my best. Otherwise, what use am I to anybody? Certainly not going to be useful to my daughter. I'm not going to be useful to my mom. I'm not going to be useful to Peter as a partner or a friend. I'm not going to be useful at work. And for damn sure, I'm not going to be useful to myself. And the choice I made when we found out that his cancer was indeed going to be terminal, because up until then we thought, you know, treatment and chemo and radiation and all that. But that day, ooh, that day, when his oncologist told him that he would only have a short time to live and he handed me a piece of paper because he loved the to-do list. I hate them. <laughs> <laughs> Probably no surprise. <laughs> and at the top of the list was to cancel our divorce because that was his wish. 
And I had to contemplate, and it was a split second, but I had to contemplate whether or not saying yes to that was going to benefit us and benefit me. And I know that probably sounds so harsh that in a moment where somebody else who's dying is telling you that their last wish is to reconcile and that I still sit and think, how does this work for me? I know that sounds crazy. I know it sounds selfish, but I'm telling you, it is what you must do. Because I think I would be in a different position now, both mentally, spiritually, emotionally, physically, perhaps, if I had made a choice for him and not for me that I made the choice for me. So when he asked, I didn't say yes because he said so. I didn't say yes because he wanted it. I said yes because I wanted it. Because I considered all the decisions that I'd made in the past. I I considered what life would be like without him. And I recognized in that moment that whatever time he had left, I wanted it with him. And that our relationship was worth watching him decline up until his very last breath. And that I would promise him that regardless of what happened, I would not leave his side. It was our wedding song, you know, Sade, by your side. And the lyrics in that song say that I won't leave you. (laughs) And so even though we had separated, even though we're in the middle of a divorce, even though he had a girlfriend, even though I was over here running around dating multiple people, but we'll talk to that another time. (laughs) Definitely it won't. was still my choice that I wanted to stay because of me, not because of him. <clears throat> Thank you for sharing that. I don't think it's selfish. And I think that anyone that's sitting there right now saying that is just they've got an old mentality that I think they've been told by other mm. people that you should put other people first. And, yeah. you know, if someone's dying, then of course you put theirs, their needs first. Mm. But I think the honest The honest thing is every single human would have that hesitation moment in their head. Mm. And I would say 0.00001% would actually admit it. Mm. So I actually don't think you're unique in that way. I just think you actually did it and admitted it. Mm. Everyone else would have that second of, oh God, do I actually want this? Mm. And then the guilt would come in. And then the idea of, oh my God, but I should would come in. And that's where I think people just like, oh, hang on, that's selfish. But the reality is, is that when you put yourself first to your point, now during the time that he had left, Mm. you were actually invested. And it wasn't this fake bravado. Right. And or obligation. Right. He would have felt that. He would have felt that. And I would have felt resentment. Mm Mm-hmm. I'd have felt resentment because it was not an easy time. This was nobody's walk in the park. You know, the, the process of dying is terrible. It is awful. It is not something that I wish anybody to experience, both for the person who's dying and the person who's left behind. It's a terribly traumatic situation. And I would have felt resentment if I felt I was doing it only for his benefit. I would never forgive him for that. Never. And by the way, there are things I don't forgive him for now, Mm. you know, but that, that of sacrificing myself and living with this terrible experience, if I was only doing it for him, oh, I would have never, I could never forgive him. I would still be sitting here so angry about it. How would I ever get over that? 
And sometimes we do make those decisions, that choice, mm-hmm. you know, to do it for the other person. But then that's, at what sacrifice yourself? Because then you live with your resentment. And what I freaking love, like it, it really shocked me that you were this honest. And honestly, all I can do is applaud you because I just think you're saying what other people think and feel. Mm. You're just brave enough to actually put it in writing mm. is what I really do believe. And so when you said, also I had to process, what if he survived? And I said yes, yes for him. Now am I literally just sacrificing myself in a relationship because I was so feeling bad about him dying that now he's better, I'm stuck again. I was like, oh my God, thank you for being honest because the amount of people that would think that and not say it. Now, why is it important for you to actually say it? Because I think this is the sort of thing that Mm -hmm. holds people back and especially us women back because we get conflicted between what we've been taught and then Mm. what we actually feel. Yes, yes. Because that's actually what I was feeling. Mm, you know? It was like, yes, in that moment where he says, cancel the divorce, I want us to reconcile, will you say yes? And I'm sitting there thinking, God, do I say yes? Is this what I want? You know? And I make the decision, I'm like, yes, actually, this is what I want. I'm not doing it for him, I'm doing it for me. Mm. And then later on, thinking, ooh, what if he does get better? Then what, what happens? Do I have to stay in this relationship? Or was it, was it just, you know, some sort of romantic, like, split-second decision, spontaneous, that, like, now I can't take back? And maybe I'll admit something now, which I, I really haven't thought about, which is that, um, and let me think how I want to articulate this. It's like, gosh, it's hard to, it's hard to say it. Um, if he had survived by some miracle and we were back in a relationship and if at some point I felt that we had gone back to where I was feeling you know I think I would have left again and that's a very very difficult thing for me to admit Um, and you know, this is the great unknown, right? Mm-hmm. It's like, I don't know if maybe the experience of having gone through that together would have fused us in a way that if he had survived, I would have remained because of the experience, right? I don't know. Mm-hmm. Those are questions I can't answer. But I know for sure that if he had survived and we had been in a relationship again and that I had at all felt the way that I felt before that, Nothing could have kept me there. And so I would choose myself again. To do again, I would choose myself. I wish I could say that um, my choice to reconcile our marriage, that that love would conquer everything. I wish I could say that. You know? But I don't, I don't know that I honestly could say that. When you get to that moment of something traumatic Mm -hmm. really being that either crack or that hard bond what do you think Mm. the difference is that happens Mm. there Mm. what a great question what a great question just as you were talking i I was just thinking like it's so funny how you can go one or the other so right because like i think about the reason why peter and i ended up where we ended up was because of all those cracks that happened and then they just continued to you know split us Mm -hmm. And yes, there are some things that, you know, you go through that then bond you to somebody, you know, like, and it can be a friend. It could be any situation, right? I think 
Like, I mean, I hate to use this example, but people who go to war say that, right? Mm-hmm. Soldiers, they come back and they have these bonds with the people they were in the front lines with or down in the, you know, like they, they say that. Yeah. And... Your question is so right on, which is just like, what is the difference between what bonds people together when they've gone through trauma and what splits them apart? And I think sometimes it might just be their understanding of who's responsible for that thing. Who's responsible for that trauma? Who's responsible for that fracture? And if you at all point at the other person, then you're going to move. If you both think it is that over there, then you're going to get together. So perhaps that's what happens in, again, I hate to use this example, but maybe that's what happens in war. That you're thinking, oh, we have a common enemy over there. They're the ones who are causing these fractures in us. And so therefore it bonds us together because we have that common enemy. And I do talk about it a little bit in my book, which is that like in our fight for Lael, our second child to be born healthy, we should have been on the same side on the solution, mm-hmm. right? Because we got a new doctor, I got on medication. All of those things should have been fusing us together because we should have seen a common enemy in that like we didn't want grief again and that we wanted to be together in the fight for her survival. But instead, what we didn't articulate and which I can see now so clear is that we blamed each other for it. I blamed him for his decisions that he made with the doctor. The first time. The first time. Yeah. I blamed him entirely. I did not see myself in that at all. He blamed me for not having taken better care of myself, probably. You know what I mean? Because there were certain things that actions that he did that I was like, ah, that's because you don't trust me. Right? Think about fights you've had like that, you know, where you interpret somebody else's actions. And you're like, oh, that's because you don't trust me. You don't like me. That's why you did that without ever actually really talking about it. And so our fractures happened because we blamed each other. We were not on the same side. And so anything that hit was like hit, hit. Instead of us cowering together when that thing came over, you know, that new surprise, that new trauma of bonding together and saying, ah, we have a common enemy out there that's trying to get us. Mm. We didn't do that. Do you think part of it was because he was so fearful that you, he would lose you again to this, getting pregnant the second time? Maybe, maybe. I mean, these are all things that I can maybe guess on, right? Sure. I don't know if maybe, you know, he, because he was certainly against us getting pregnant again so fast. So perhaps he held some resentment against me. Right. For forcing us into this situation again. That could have been my fault. You know, he could have been like, it's your fault that you're here again, struggling in your body because you didn't let yourself heal. You know, the reason reason why I asked that, though, is because me and my husband had an argument fairly recently. I went swimming Mm. with sharks with a bunch of women and he had a heart attack. And he was like, don't ever do that again. And I was like, Mm. I'm a grown woman. Please don't tell me what to do. And he was just like. But you're messing with the thing that is most precious to me in my entire mm. life. Mm. And mm. so it isn't just your life. Mm. And so I was like, oh, God, Ooh. I know. Yeah. And I was like, oh, I actually see what he's saying. Yeah, 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 and yeah, so yeah. even just as you were describing it, it's like almost like there's, I could imagine, and again, yeah. now there's no, but like the, um, 
almost as a moment of resentment for yeah. him towards you because he's just like, you're messing with the most precious thing in my life. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, to some degree, you're right because he made that choice, right? Mm. He decided at some point that like, no, she's more precious than this. And so in his actions, I can totally see that. It didn't stop us from the fracture. No. I mean, your explanation, though, of what brings people was so, like, I think you're mm. freaking absolutely, like, hit the nail on the head. Yeah. Um, the commonality thing is such an interesting idea as mm. well because it's like anyone, right? It's like, yeah. the second I met you, right, I was like, oh, my God. I love Tupac. And oh my God, you, yeah. you taught a class at Harvard yeah. on badassery. Yeah. I was like, come on, girl. So it was like immediately the commonality between right. us. Like right. the, the, it brings you together. Mm. So actually in everything that you're saying, I think you're pretty damn spot on. Yeah. And so right now, I think we could actually potentially use that as a tool in our own lives. Mm. That if you're feeling a little fracture with your partner to identify, are you guys actually pointing the finger yes. at each other? Or is there a way you can actually pivot and find a commonality that yeah. you guys can bond over? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. By the way, even just take it out of the romantic uh, marriage relationship. I do that with my daughter now, mm. you know, um, but that happened fairly early because... Well, first of all, I didn't want to be a single parent and I felt abandoned. Right. If I can also be totally honest with that. Mm. I was like pissed at him. I was like, how dare you die and leave me here when at first I didn't even want to be a mom. And then I got I felt like I got bamboozled into it, you know, like tricked. And then now I'm here by myself. You know? And when I looked at her, I thought, how am I going to do this? She was four. I was like, how am I, how am I supposed to raise this person? She's not even in freaking pre-K. How am I supposed to do it? And thinking through that, I was like, man, we got to be on the same side. Like, you know, we can't be on opposite sides. Mm. I recognized that almost immediately. I was like, oh, man, like I got to, you and I, we've got to, we've got to figure this out because it's just me and you, kid. Like, we, we can't, we can't be on opposite sides. Whatever is happening out there is happening out there. Not to us, though. You know, like we can't. And so now she's 13 She's, you know, in that place where she's figuring out her own things. Um, but I feel really good about it because even when she's pushing her boundaries, we are still very, very active in how we talk about it, you know? And look, I, I fully recognize that there's going to be a moment where she won't feel like she can talk to me about her things. But what my hope and prayer is, is that the years that we've spent, you know, getting to this point, this foundation that we've built where we are on the same side. And I recognize that. And I've told her that we're on the same side, regardless of what happens outside. Anything that happens out there, we are on the same side, is I hope what carries us in our relationship, you know, even through the mess of teenage years mm -hmm. and all of that stuff, that knowing that regardless of all of that, that we're on the same side, I'm always going to be on her side. There's two things out of that that you just said that is so damn powerful that I think really echoes into any relationship. Mm. I've interviewed a lot of therapists on my show. Um, and so the thing is, is that the, what women or most people actually just want is they want safety and to be seen. Mm. And so as you were explaining, I'm like, mm. oh, that's exactly how your daughter feels. Mm. She feels safe that no mm. matter what she brings in, even if it's going to be something from the outside, that you're going to be on the same side as her. Yep. And then the fact that you see her. Yes. Yes. And it's not like, you know, when you're on the opposite yes. side, you almost don't see yes. each other. You're just talking yes. at each yes. other. Yes, yes, yes. So I like that. She's is... seen. She's very much seen. Yeah. And even to that point where we talked about choice, you know, and sometimes I make the choice to do this thing instead of doing her mm -hmm. thing. 
we talk about that. And I started that early. You know, I was like, look, um, there are going to be some things that are really important to you for me to attend or be at or pay attention to uh, that I'm going to make a choice to do something else. And I need to know whether or not that's like a deal breaker for you. Mm. You know, I was like, I need to know whether or not that's like really, really, really going to hurt. Or is that something that you're going to be okay with if I choose the other thing? And so we're able to also do that, you know, and, and talk about those things. So there isn't resentment 10 no, years or 20 years no. down the line. Well, I, hope, she turns I hope there's very little of it, you know, because I don't know that I'll be able to capture all of it because I'm sure there's going to be some things that I'll do that will hurt her feelings. Yeah, for sure. You know, but my point is that, um, you know, her being seen is very important to me because I feel like our trauma forced us there. And to some degree, if I could also say this, I'm thankful for it. Mm. I'm thankful for it because I don't know what kind of mother I would have been without it. You know, without being forced into this like this. Because I think I was taking it so casually, even though it was so much trauma to bring her into the world. You know, that my idea of motherhood was different. And that after Peter's death, I had to approach it so dramatically differently than I had had before. And so even being able to see her and at a young age being like, girl, what you want? You know, you tell me what's important. And that has so many examples of where like she has reaffirmed that, you know, whether it was like in first grade when, you know, the teachers all had the parents come and stay in the class on the first day of school and like you know it's like oh well you know stay for half the day and I was like I can't I gotta catch a plane because I have to go up to Cupertino to the office because we're building Apple Music and I can't stay here and talking to her about that and being like are you gonna be okay with that and she's like yes that's okay yes for people you were doing it every single day day. you were you were taking her to school early you were flying there working there and then you were flying back coming home at 8 p.m so that you could put her to bed at 8 30. yeah yeah Yeah. that's a choice right there girl where other people will be like i can't do both that's that was a choice but i knew that i was making that decision for me too Mm, right of course where it's like i knew that i wanted to be there at night to put her down to bed you know, and I also wanted my job. Yeah. I also wanted that. I was also ambitious. I also wanted to be at the top. So I was going to do things, but there were there were trade-offs. And sometimes it meant I had to talk to her about that. Sometimes it meant that like, hey, look, it's the first day of school and I can't take you. Okay, all the other moms are going to be there. They're going to have the little, you know, lunch bags or they would have brought the home-baked goods. And I still don't do the bake sale. I don't do that. You know what I mean? I don't take the fresh cookies to the school. I don't do it. Yeah, I, I don't have time. I can't do it. I've made a choice not to. Yeah, you know what I mean? Like, exactly. Yeah. But you know, but that's but these yeah. are these are the conversations that she and I have been forced into having and now have fused us together. Mm. You know, I see her. We're on the same side. And everything else that is happening to us is outside of us. So therefore we can be on the same side. And I pray that that is what remains, but I'm conscious of that. And so my hope is that should anything else fracture, should anything else come towards us, that I'll be conscious enough to constantly see her. Oh, God, homie, I could literally keep going. There's so many things we didn't even touch upon. 
We're so, so out of time. I've got to just have you back, girl. Yeah, I, th- I just think we just need it. to do a round two. Let's do it. Where can people find you, everything you're doing, your freaking amazing work? Uh, well, I am very open and loud on social media. Yeah. So badass bows, because why not? You know, <laughs> on all platforms. <laughs> that's where I am. Yes. And I'm on there constantly, every day, all the time, answering comments and in the DMs. So come talk to me. Uh, guys, guys, you have got to go check her out. Her book, The Urgent Life, yeah. literally had me in tears. I don't think my husband has ever experienced me going up to him in such a short period of time telling him I love him. Because this book really does, it, like, it allows you to understand humanity. It sees that the, the, the traumas are just, are you are, you are able to overcome them. She's the most perfect shining light to show you how you can do it with such beauty and grace and still show up and be a freaking badass. So guys, go check out her book. If you're not subscribed, click that subscribe button. So please, please do share this episode. And without further ado, guys, be the hero of your own life. She's literally got me speechless. <laughs> please, lay 